Hi, everybody. Bienvenidos. Welcome to Jerry Moss Plaza at the Music Center. My name is Josephine Ramirez, and I'm with the Music Center. I want to thank all of you for coming, and I also want to thank everyone who's joining us online for the live stream of this evening's conversation. As we get started tonight, I want to take a minute to recognize for all of us gathered here that we are on the sacred and ancestral grounds of the Tongva and a lot of other indigenous groups who call this ground their home. The Music Center acknowledges and honors with gratitude both the land itself and the first people who have stewarded it throughout the generations. Thank you. As I said, my name is Josephine, and I'm with the Music Center. I'm head of TMC Arts, which is the division of the Music Center, TMC, get it, Arts, um, that's responsible for all of the programming here on Jerry Moss Plaza, also for all the programming across the street at Gloria Molina Grand Park, also for schools, programming we do with schools and neighborhoods all over LA County, and for dance residencies with companies like Paul Taylor Dance Company, the one that prompted tonight's partnership with Sokolo Public Square. Now since TMC Arts aims with its programming for relevance, for topics that are compelling and accessible, we're a perfect fit for um, of this partnership with Zocalo and for this, um, this conversation tonight about the role of art in war and ideas around that. Um, as I mentioned, tonight is part of Paul Taylor Dance Company's residency here at the Music Center and they'll also be performing later this week right inside that big building there, the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. Um, tonight's discussions are going to be rich and thought-provoking, and I can't wait to get to them. So I'm going to introduce Bianca Collins, who's Director of Public Programs at Sokolow Public Square, and she's going to introduce a little bit more and then tell us about our panelists. So thanks again, and bienvenidos. Thank you, Josephine. Hello, everyone. I'm Bianca Collins. I'm Director of Public Programs for Zocalo Public Square, an Arizona State University media enterprise. At Zocalo, our mission is to connect people to ideas and to each other. Everything we do is free and everyone is welcome. We publish original writing and present conversations like this one. We were founded in 2003 and we are celebrating our 20th birthday year. You can find us at ZocaloPublicSquare.org, on podcast platforms, and YouTube, so please subscribe for our latest programs. We're very honored to partner with the Music Center for tonight's program, asking, how is art a weapon in war? After the program, please stay for a reception to continue the conversation with us and each other at the Mullen Wine Bar Garden right behind you. And now I'm pleased to introduce our moderator, Viet Tan Nguyen. He is an author whose debut novel, The Sympathizer, won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction. His most recent publication is The Committed, the sequel to The Sympathizer. His other books are The Refugees, Nothing Ever Dies, Vietnam and the Memory of War, and Race and Resistance, Literature and Politics in Asian America. He is a university professor, the Errol Arnold Chair of English, and a professor of English, American Studies, and Ethnicity, and Comparative Literature at the University of Southern California. He's also a recipient of fellowships from the Guggenheim and MacArthur Foundations. Viet, over to you. Thanks so much, Bianca. Hello, everyone. Welcome and thank you for joining us. As you've just heard, my name is Viet Tang Nguyen, and I'm a novelist as well as a professor at USC. I'm honored to introduce our guests for tonight. First, we have Galari Koshkozarin. She is an artist, filmmaker, and writer whose work engages with the legacies of imperial violence. Galari has presented her work internationally with recent and upcoming exhibitions at ICALA, the Hammer Museum, and Mass MoCA. She received a BA in photography from University of Arts in Tehran and an MFA from the University of Southern California. Please welcome Galari Kushkozarin.
Next is Khalil Kinsey. He is the Chief Operating Officer, Chief Curator, and Creative Director for the Kinsey African American Art and History Collection, a traveling exhibition that's had over 16 million visitors and was cited for the President's National Award for Museum and Library Services. This is now on display at SoFi Stadium, so you can go check it out. He's Director of the Kinsey Foundation for Arts and Education and works with many other organizations on education reform, mentoring, and communication. Please welcome Khalil Kinsey. Next is Michael Novak. He is the artistic director of the Paul Taylor Dance Company, known worldwide for its athleticism, expression, and innovation. He graduated from Columbia University and was a celebrated dancer in the company for nearly a decade before becoming artistic director. He has been critically acclaimed for bringing the Taylor Company into a new era and was recently included in Crane's 40 Under 40. Please welcome Michael Novak. Finally, we have Nadia Tolokonikova. She is a performance artist and activist and the creator of Pussy Riot, a global feminist protest art movement. She was sentenced in 2012 to two years imprisonment following an anti-Putin performance and was sent to a Siberian penal colony. She is a co-founder of Media Zona, an independent news service and media outlet, and has spoken before the US Congress, British Parliament, and European Parliament. Please welcome Nadia Tolokonikova. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. We'll be taking questions from the audience later in the program. If you're watching online, you can submit questions in the live chat on YouTube. And so with that, let's begin. What I'm going to do is I'm going to ask everybody some individual questions. They're coming from such diverse backgrounds, their origins, their practices, their, their arts. Their, and I wanted to get you to know a little, bit about, a little bit about each of them before we get into the big question collectively for the panel. So Michael, I'm going to start with you. Um, since you're the artistic director of the Paul Taylor Dance Company, and the company's performance of the Green Table at the Music Center is happening this Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, right? That's correct. Yeah. yeah. So first, can you describe for the audience the Green Table? Yes. Um, so the Green Table is a ballet. Um, it was choreographed in 1932 by German choreographer Kurt Jos. And this is in between World War I and World War II. And kind of what was happening, what was happening in dance at the time, both in America and in Europe, was this rejection of the classical ballet canon, um, notions of body, notions of gender, um, how the human form could express itself. And in Germany specifically, there was this aggressive movement to, to not hide the horrors of what was happening within the actual world. And Kurt Jost created this incredible ballet, uh, which its subtitle is a, is a um, dance of death in eight different scenes. And he starts us at a table that is green with a bunch of with a bunch of gentlemen in black who decide to go to war and what follows is the aftermath of that call to action separate from that room and the end of the ballet takes us back to those men still at that room deciding what actually happens next um, the ballet does not necessarily give a resolution as much as it presents the futility of war as a never-ending cycle and lets audiences sit back and process what is the next step. Um, it celebrated 90 years last year um, and I wanted our company to take it on. Um, it's an incredibly profound work. Um, it is timeless. Um, the interesting thing about the ballet specifically is that um, 1932 was when it premiered, 1933 is when Hitler became Chancellor of Germany, um, and Hitler specifically invited Kurt Jost's company to become part of the state um, under the exclusion of all of the Jews in his company. Kurt Jost then took his company and overnight fled to England, where he lived for a number of years, and brought his company out and brought his art to the world. 
and didn't come back to Germany until much, much later. Um, so the work as it exists today is because he fled with it. Mm -hmm. um, so there's another subtext to the ballet beyond just what you see on stage. That's really fascinating. And you, know, you mentioned that at the end, they're at a table. These men are at a table mm -hmm. negotiating what comes next. Mm -hmm. And when you talk about that, I'm thinking, wow, that's, you're saying it's timeless. It is timeless. We're still in a situation with mostly men around tables deciding what happens next, right. irregardless of the human lives that are being lost as they're carrying out their negotiations. Sometimes debating the shape of the table is a part of the negotiation. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So that this, it, and that's what unfortunately makes the work poignant and necessary to perform mm -hmm. is that even though it is 90 years old, we, we, <laughs> we have not evolved as much as we might like to think that we have. Mm -hmm. um, but it does it in a way that is incredibly subtle, incredibly, um, it's, not, it's not violent, but it sneaks in and audiences of all ages, it, it gets in and right. gets, gets people thinking very critically. Well, it sounds like the subtlety is a part of the performance simply because it doesn't have to make a belated point of, about the inevitability of war and its continual cycling, right? Mm -hmm. So Galari, um, you were born in Tehran in 1986 during the Iran-Iraq war, which killed hundreds of thousands on both sides. And I, I don't give you a specific figure because it's actually kind of hard to locate a specific figure and there's debates and so on about that. And that really struck me because my background is that I came out of the Vietnam War and the same similar issues around, well, how many people died? We don't know exactly, there is debates. And then who's included in these, in these figures and all that? So your work engages with the legacies of imperial violence manifested in war and militarization, borders and archives. And I'm assuming your interest in war is tied at least partly to your biography. So in what way did the Iran-Iraq war affect you as an artist? Um, <clears throat> I mean, you're right that my interest or some kind of obsession with war started with um, being born in the middle of it um, but I think that experience collectively was so um, informative to my subjectivity as a political being mm -hmm. that made me aware of my existence as a child, not just within a family or in a country, but within a world. Mm -hmm. um, and that world, the, the first world that I was introduced to, like many children my age, like many children in different parts of the world, was through this violent conflict. Um, and the Iran-Iraq war lasted eight years. I was born in the middle of it, and it followed a revolution. Um, so the country was in, already in upheaval, had been already a decade or so. When the war started, uh, which like many other wars, it was really unnecessary. It was over a debate that didn't really end in um, any kind of territorial uh, rearrangement. The borders of Iran-Iraq uh, remained the same. But my interest in that was um, how it made me aware of time um, and the experience of time under such conditions of violence um, and the role of my parents in raising children, like many other parents during the war, um, and how banal it can be, how normalized it can get because life has to go on. You can't just mm. press pause because there's a war. Um, so all of those, I think, really ingrained in me a different relationship to temporality and, and to images and to memories and to collectivity as well as individuality. Um, and I remember, you know, one thing that really struck me and, and I in speaking to a lot of my friends who were living under those conditions was the ambiguity between play and reality, because as a child, you think everything is actually just a play. Um, but some, somewhere deep down in your psyche, you understand that this is a danger to you. Otherwise, you, you pick up on the anxiety of the adults around you. Um, and those moments of, of play and violence were really, I think, become, became a through line in my practice. And, and the relationship to time and, and image making really informs to this day how I make uh, films and videos. You know, I, I, uh, I grew up in the United States and uh, thinking about war, it seemed to me that for many Americans, when they think of war, they think of it as something that happens on a battlefield somewhere far away involving soldiers and so on, which, which it does, obviously. But for so many other people in whose countries wars are actually being fought, it's more than just soldiers. Mm -hmm. You know, like the 
civilians are being killed, uh, women and children, elderly people are involved, refugees are being produced internally, although they would be called internally displaced people instead of refugees. And that means that war for so many other countries is not a distant experience, it's a very direct experience. And I think you're invoking some of that. I'm, I'm particularly interested in what you were saying, like war is banal. Mm -hmm. It affects the parents and the children. Mm -hmm. Therefore, it affected, affected you. Do you think that produced a different kind of art for you versus if you were not as intimately involved? Definitely, and I think the way that it mostly um, that I that I still try to think about it is not as a as an event that had a beginning and an end because, like you were mentioning, you know, some of the effects of the war may end with a ceasefire, but the ceasefire is the beginning of another war, is the aftermath of the war, is the famine, is the damage on the psyche, is the is the is the all the is all the harm that's been done to the culture and the infrastructures and and the amount of time and and the refugees and the exiles and the way that it really shatters, you know, um, the realm of culture, uh, from food to to literature to to arts and and um, and all of that. And I think, as a caveat, I would like to also like to say that the Iran-Iraq War is considered a traditional war, and that has a particular definition, both, you know institutionally thinking in terms of the UN definition, but also like you were mentioning, you know, that is a border to border, neighboring country, soldiers, um, and that it was the most severe traditional war after the world war um, to this day. Mm. So I would like to make that distinction, but then there's a whole other type of war that still exists and mm. followed that such as sanctions and all of that. I mean, I grew up again in the United States uh, after 1975 and, it, and this, the, the, the war in Vietnam officially ended in 1975. Mm -hmm. um, but of course, growing up in the United States, what I noticed was that the war wasn't actually over. Mm -hmm. Like Americans were still fighting the war over and over again in their minds. You know, they made all these movies, Hollywood movies about the Vietnam War. I've, I've seen almost every movie that Hollywood has made about the Vietnam War and that's an exercise I recommend to nobody. <laughs> Especially if you're Vietnamese. So one line I have is that all wars are fought twice, the first time on the battlefield, the second time in memory. That mm -hmm. certainly seemed true for the war in Vietnam, but uh, Khalil, I think it's also true in many ways for other kinds of wars in American, in his, American history, um, including the Civil War, for example, which we're still fighting, as far as I'm concerned, in our memory and in our politics today. So Khalil, African-Americans have been involved in America's wars and conflicts since at least the revolution. By involved, I mean everything from participating in these wars to protesting them and refusing to serve. There's always been tension for black people when it comes to serving patriotically while also living through conditions of systemic and structural racism. What have been some notable black artistic responses to the roles that black people have played in American wars? Well, I think it's been on kind of both sides. There's, there's the kind of interesting conundrum that comes with being black in America, you know, in terms of being able to be proud of or to see the American flag and feel a, a certain patriotism or pride, but then also feel very threatened by it, depending on the context. Um, and that has been the same way that art has been expressed and developed and created um, on both sides. There's been art that was created in the Civil War and World War I that was saying pretty much for black troops, put us in the game. We want to fight, you know? Um, and then there have been those that have been anti-war. Um, oftentimes it's rooted in, or at all times it's rooted in this understanding that you may go off and fight for your country, or you will go off and fight for your country and you'll come back and be treated the same exact way that you were when you left, and you'll be met with the, sa with the same hostility, and you won't receive the benefits and the, the distinctions and the awards and the different things that come with fighting with valor and, you know, and, and, and patriotism. So that creates, a, I think, a, an outlook that forces us to look internally and say, well, what is our existence right here? Why are we looking outside of ourselves when, we are, when there are really wars being waged on us? And, and how can we part, be part of the resistance? So I, I think about, you know, the civil rights movement, which in, in all, always was a battle, right? It was a war. And you think about the abstract expressionist movements, in this case, Norman Lewis and Romare Bearden and, and uh, Richard Mayhew and others that formed the Spiral Group. Now, these were abstractionists that 
aren't creating literal works, you know, that are speaking out against war per se, but they created works that had a voice and they wanted to contribute their work towards the movement for black lives. And it was a way in which others could make their own interpretations and see themselves in this work and find their, their fight and find their weapons in this work in a different way. And I think that that's what art is. It, it is something that can be very literal, but also can be open enough to be something in which you find and are able to locate yourself and your role and your agency, you know, while also perhaps finding a, a bit of escape, you know, to, to be able to counter the experience. And, and at its core, you know, that is, I think, the beauty of, of art. But also it depends on how, what we qualify as art, mm -hmm. which, you know, if you're if someone like me, I see it everywhere. I see it in, in conversation. I see it in every bit of existence. And so we're talking visual, we're talking performance, we're talking, you know, relation, relationship. It can be something very artistic and something that prompts, for me, I'm, I'm more interested in the resistance, mm -hmm. right? I'm more interested in what we're able to discover in ourselves that makes us look at this world as one and each other as in the same on on that on this as part of the same picture mm -hmm. to where we're able to see that a war happening on our soil or elsewhere affects us and that we have a role in resisting right yeah you know you brought up abstract the first movement you cited the spiral group abstract expressionists for example it did make me think you know of what michael's also doing that there, there's a role for abstraction even when it comes to war i mean we're tempted to think that war can only be portrayed in a realistic fashion with bodies and you know, you know literal depictions and so on. But you're also making a claim for, for abstraction as being really important. And you're also talking about art being manifested in other things outside of elite art spaces, but in conversations and so on. I'm wondering if you can comment then on your work as a curator and, sure. and the collection that you have and, and what function you think that has in uh, you know, dealing with black culture, but also war and how that, that, that serves the resistance and a population that you want to reach out to? My curation really is rooted in tapping into, into a consciousness, into providing things that, that prompt you to look deeper and to see, see a little more broadly. Um, in a way, in this case, you know, starting with Black America, the information isn't readily available. It isn't something that we are. I mean, we're in a, in a time right now where books are being banned and there are school systems that are all totally altering the truth, right? Those are elements of war, right? Those are elements in which th th that, that have been employed in war time and time again. So the question is posed, then where does the information come from? Where's the truth come from? And that's where we come in, providing facts, primary source, things that can't be refuted because they're the, the genuine, authentic article and you just depend on open-mindedness and people's own human process to connect the dots and come to their own conclusions and hopefully look in a different way at the things that they experience every, in everyday life. I believe that certain wars occur and, and develop based on the information we have and the information we don't have. And so I'm tr what I'm trying to do at every turn is to connect these dots and give a broader view of a people and a people's contribution to where the things and the, 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 the wars that are waged on black communities and black Americans, we have an ammunition and an armor to not just go, you know what I mean? Not to just go one way or the other, but to actually stand tall on what we do know. And and the, and the the place in this world that we that we that we rightfully have. Mm -hmm. So Nadia, some of the things that um, Khalil brought up, I think, are very relevant to your own work and your own experience. He brought up the idea of art and culture as modes of resistance, um, book banning in this country as a form of culture war, the war via information or suppression of information or disinformation. He brought up the state waging war on its own people which we do here in the United States as well, bring up the example of wars that have been waged against African-Americans in various ways. Now, I have confirmed with everybody on the panel that you, among the panelists, are the only one here who has spent time in prison because of your art and your politics. 
Um, I think a lot of people probably already know about, about, about Pussy Riot, but we, we might want to hear more about that. But did you anticipate that political repression and prison would be a consequence of your work? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, when you step into the world of um, activism in Russia, you know that you may face all sorts of consequences, um, such as um, poisoning, getting beaten, jailed, um, murdered. Um, my friends uh, were assassinated in broad daylight um, when I was only 19. Um, the the friend, um, friend of mine who was part of the same art collective, she was 22. She was a young anti-fascist anti journalist. So I did know, yes, and I, I faced, um, I, I saw people who lost their, I mean, like, lost um, their health because they got bitten with baseball bats because um, they protested, not even Putin, um, but for better ecology in their region, um, in the suburbs, suburbs of Moscow. So it's known that our regime is um, based on the rule of thugs. They don't have any grace um, or honor. The only language that they speak is language of violence and oppression. But, um, well, un unfortunately, <clears throat> if nobody's going to be working against this regime, nothing is ever going to change. Because even if Putin dies tomorrow, if there is not strong enough resistance, then it's going to start over with just another asshole. Um, so we did know what we are facing, um, but I guess, I mean, like there is no simple way of changing history. And it's, um, it's not fun, it sucks, but um, that's, that's what you should do. Can you tell us about the origins of Pussy Riot? Like sort of walk us through how you and your colleagues decided to come up with this group, why you gave it the name that you did, and you already talked about, you, you knew what the consequences were going to be. Yeah, uh, at the time when we started Pussy Riot, um, I uh, was a part of um, another conceptual performance art collective um, that I also co-founded. I was just 17 when we started it, um, and it was called, um, interestingly enough, the war, why not? And we went um, with our war against art institutions and complacency and people wanting to live glamorous and comfortable lives while closing their eyes on injustice that is happening right in front of their faces. And um, we decided to shake it up. So for five years, we've been practicing um, activism, performance art that we did um, on the streets. No, um, no permits. So we would uh, do things like project uh, giant skull and bones on the White House of Russia, and then go to um, actually storm the White House of Russia. And we did it, and we ran away with, um, they, didn't, they never caught us. Um, we wanted to show people of Russia that resisting is indeed an option. We wanted to give an example and we were hoping that other people will follow. And in order to maximize our effectiveness, we decided to use art. Because if all of us who are here on stage just go um, and try to organize a rally, there's going to be a small rally that's uh, pretty insignificant and nobody, nobody's going to pay attention. But if you're going to come up with a great art piece, there is a chance that people all around the world are going to hear about it. So I guess it just all come, comes back to the topic of our conversation, how art is the weapon of war. Or I actually like your words more. It's a weapon of resistance. Mm. Um, and then after practicing um, with this war collective, we started Pussy Red. We decided to combine something really soft and something that often people use as a derogatory word, pussy, which I think we need to reclaim. Um, and so we decided to use pussy and show that it can be really strong, um, opinionated, and it can fight back. So we called it Pussy Riot. Um, and we started practicing in the end of 2011. 
um, when Putin announced that he's going to become the president pretty much forever. Um, he said, I'm going to go to the third term. Um, under our constitution, you only can have two consecutive terms. And it was the beginning of end. They realized that Russia is going to um, just directly into death, torture, um, dark ages, um, and imprisonment for all of the opponents. So we decided to just go to the street, do pretty much what we're doing today, but with art, and scream to the people of Russia that you should join us in denouncing the um, awful, cruel Putin's regime and tell that the emperor is naked. Right. I think you're right that um, I think all the artists on this panel are probably, probably don't think of their art as a weapon of war, but as a weapon of resistance. Um, when I think about art as a weapon of war, I think about Hollywood. I mean, that's like, you know, Top Gun 2 is like one of the greatest propaganda movies ever made, right? And so Hollywood is our unofficial ministry of propaganda in the United States. That's how we use art as a weapon of war. But now I'd like for our panelists to respond to the question of the panel. How is art a weapon of war. You can answer it any way you want to. And anybody can jump in. You got it. No, I'm, I'm <laughs> the thought of art as a form of resistance versus, I, I, I think there's, my brain is spinning right now because you also mentioned there's, there's two wars. There's the war that happens in the war of memory or the war, I forget how you, all wars are fought twice. twice. The first time on the battlefield, the second time in memory. Trademark me. Okay, go ahead. And I think, how is art a weapon of war? I'm thinking about it in those, kind of in those two, in those two specific lanes of like, art as openly addressing and confronting what is physically and tangibly in front of a group of people versus the spiritual, emotional, layer that's underneath that and what is how how does art function to sustain hope and a desire for something better and like how how is art on those two fronts evolving that's it's not an answer that's just kind of like the literal tangible fighting the thing that's in front of us versus like how are we using art to actually connect into who we are and to how we express ourselves and claiming that as power rather than letting some state or some political regime dictate or take that power away. Hmm. I believe art, you know, comes out of, is oftentimes a common commentary on the, on the times and, a, and a, a response to current events and to, and informed by so much that came before it. Um, art is the heart and soul of the person that makes it. And it's what they, it is, it is the culmination of all of these experiences, right? And with that, it's a very human element to it that it, we don't always think about this in terms of, you know, because of consumerism and commodification, but at the core of art is humanity. And if we think about it that way, then you think about it in terms of the human cost that comes with war and the urgency that comes with creating something that speaks to the why or the why not, right? And I mean, and let's not kid ourselves, art is used in the other, in, you know, to the counter as well. It's, it's, it can be used uh, in a way that is co-opt, in a co-optive way to promote a war mm -hmm. as well. Um, but what I think we, the general consensus is we're, we're talking on the resistance side. Um, you know, I think about the Black Panthers. I think about the uh, Emory Douglas and all of the newspapers that were distributed, the Black Panther newspapers that had art on every cover. Beautiful works, representational of beautiful black work, of black people, but also of very urgent issues, right? Uh, that were rooted in agency, mm. giving people agency to understand that they can play a role in resisting this you know, or fighting back. Um, and I think that that's what, that's how art can be used as, as a weapon in terms of what weapons do we have, right? It's, we think about war, 
as something with with you know as militarized, you know tanks and guns and and the like. But if you take it down to a micro level, we understand we and you look at the news every day, you understand that there's battles being fought in all kind of ways and they're random, you know. And and then that takes it down to a very human, very very human level. And I just I, I think that that's the core of the core of all of it. Um, pardon me, y'all. I just had a child. My wife just had a child. <laughs> and so I may not be so coherent. Um, but, yeah, I'm thinking, about a, I'm thinking about it a lot now, even more so because of this child and, and, and the agency that, I, that I'm able to give to him, right, Whether, whatever avenue he chooses. Hopefully it's art, you know, but the agency that he feels that he has to change, the power to change something or to be a participant in something that changes things for the better. That's how art can be used as a weapon in war or against war. Um, well, I like to always think about the most effective way how you can achieve something. So the government has a monopoly on violence, so if you go, I mean, like Noam Chomsky talks a lot about it. If you go against um, the government with violence, there are rare cases when it works. Um, but these days, with people treating violence um, with less, and um, um, I mean, people obviously do not love violence as they used to love it 500 years ago. So I guess if you're trying to bring good in the world, world and and especially good for minorities, vulnerable communities, if you try to get your point across and if you try to use violence in the war, then probably most likely what's going to happen, you're just going to end up in jail for 25 years or more, which is not really effective. Um, you can use your time better. So if you create instruments of art propaganda, what I do, you um, technically do not commit a crime, even though sometimes it is classified by governments as crime um, because they're, they're not stupid as well, at least some of them. So they realize that it's an effective instrument in the war. So um, I just think it's our best bet to um, work on the symbolic level and change people's minds. And then after that, you can actually create a momentum where um, you're going to have so many people behind you, so you, um, even the people with tanks are going to move to your side, and there's not going to be a need and bloodshed. And just one example of using art as um, a weapon in war. A year ago, over a year ago, when the war in Ukraine started, we created a fundraiser with um, a single art piece. It was a Ukrainian flag. And um, we raised $7 million in two days, and we sent those money to Ukraine to protect themselves from the Russian aggressor. Yeah. Art in a wep as a weapon of war. Uh, I, is it art as a weapon of war or as a weapon in war? Could be both. Both. Um, Bianca says in. Because yeah. I'm like, I need to break down that sentence, all the propositions. Um, I think when I think, okay, the first thing that comes to my mind is obviously propaganda and more propagandas that are explicit, like like Hollywood movies and the war mentality that's, that's constantly fed the, the, pop, the population through the entertainment business and the industry. But then there's other more subtle forms of um, art used as propaganda, such as abstract expressionism that the U.S. used during the Cold War, um, you know, works of Rauschenberg and abstract expressionist painters in the collections of MoMA and the way that it was presented as a tool against um, Russian propaganda that was very explicit and the U.S. really made ABEX this um, really sophisticated front of its art and culture. So that's one example that comes to mind that is propaganda, but it's very implicit and it's very well planned by people who have read a lot of critical theory and work for the CIA. Um, 
But then the other thing that I was thinking was, you know, to me, there's really no art during war or after war. To me, there's constant war. And, and when I think about peace and the impossibility of peace in the world that we're living today, I think about, you know, how art can possibly open up uh, a possibility, a different sensibility um, to undo <laughs> all the, the, the war that the wars that have been ingrained in us um, as a culture. And by that, I don't mean just Americans or like the people in the U.S., but in general, um, you know, how to undo the harm that um, propaganda of war uh, has been doing to us is not necessarily making counter propaganda, is creating a different way of relating, is creating a different way of thinking through aesthetic means and, and images and colors and touch and smell and writing, like you were mentioning. And I think that battle is fought in memory. Um, and, and the best that art can do, in my opinion, is really to be a good recorder, a really good observer of, um, of events and oftentimes retrospectively and not be reactionary to the events, even though they're immediate and they're important mm -hmm. and they need to be fought. But art that is, has been made during the war or in, rea in relation to or as a response to tyranny to me, um, ones that really don't age for me are ones that have, have been created with a, with a bit of a distance and with a, with a retrospection mm -hmm. to the violent event. Well, I think we have time for one last question for our panelists, and then we'll take questions from the audience. And you've made my job really easy, all right? So <laughs> you have such great answers. Uh, but one of the things that I've noticed in all of your responses, I think, and it goes back to this idea of the conundrum, Khalil, that you raised, you know, black people experience a conundrum being in this country for, for fairly, obvious, fairly obvious reasons. But then the state blames the victim. The state says, you're the problem. You're the conundrum. But I think so much of you, all of your responses have been saying, no, the conundrum is actually systemic. Yeah. You know, if the flag, for example, is both an object of pride but an object of threat for black people, it's not the problem of black people per se. It's the fact that the flag has been deployed systemically by this country. And that system is a part of who we are as Americans. And you know, I think there are a lot of Americans who want to believe, you know, we're, we're on the path to a, to a more perfect union. I'm a lot more skeptical of that because I think the conundrum is built into the very nature of American society, right? But I think all of your work in different ways addresses the conundrum of war as a system, not just an individual war as, as terrible and, and traumatic as, as individual wars are, but the systemic nature of war, the repetitive nature of war. Uh, you have to remember that we live in a military industrial complex and it was Republican Dwight Eisenhower who came up with that term to describe the United States. So just want to ask you for a last meditation against that kind of, you know, horrible picture I just sketched of <laughs> systemic war. You all also have a belief, from what I've been hearing, in the agency of the artist and the power of art. You know, yes, Top Gun 2 is like a billion dollar behemoth, mm -hmm. but against that somehow we still have to have faith in the work that individual artists, art companies, protest movements, punk movements, and so on. Uh, have, have created in the face of this systemic violence. Last thought on that, as art as agency, art as resistance, art as power, in terms of whatever way that's affected or been routed through your lives or your careers. I just want us to think about um, Pablo Picasso's Guernica. It was just one guy, but wildly influential. I'm, there's, um, for those of you who haven't seen The Green Table, there's one character in The Green Table that does not get killed by death, <laughs> and it's the profiteer. <laughs> and he enters this whole conversation about the relationship between war and capitalism and how they are two intersecting continuous circles. Um, and it always gets me in the ballet when he's able to just kind of relate to, dance with, and then kind of escape. Um, and dis but despite all that, I do think that using, <laughs> using capitalism or using money to build the spaces and the resources to create communities where that sense of individual expression is actually allowed to flourish. For me, it goes to education, not just performance. It really goes to like, what are we doing for the children now? What are the entry points? What are, 
what are they reading, how are they reading about their history, how are they creating, how are they drawing, what, what access to instruments do they have, what instruments to dance clothes do they have, you know, like, like really focusing in on what are those opportunities to keep that creative impulse alive or spark it when they're young and then keep it alive as they get older and as institutional fill-in-the-blank tries to take that away from them. Um, and that's where a lot of my focus is right now is on curriculum building um, and starting with the next generation as well as the, the artists who I do, you know, work with. Um, I'm like you. I, I can be quite cynical around uh, progress. If what I'm doing or what we're doing actually moves the needle, right? I, I, uh, I have the privilege of being very energized by my work, by the people I see it affect and the people I get to interact with, particularly young people. Um, and seeing what inspiration does like in real time, you know, and the, how that transfers. Um, but I often am met with, is it enough, you know, and, and every, but I do believe in the, in the micro affecting the macro. And I do feel that a ripple turns into a wave. And so it always leaves me with, what choice do we have, right? What choice do we have? What do we roll over? Mm. Do you lay down or do you create? And that's the question I believe that we have to ask ourselves in these times and throughout time, right? Do we, what do we do? What do we create and how do we, you know, how does it live and what is it for? And I think the answers are always there in the whys. And, and that's what keeps me pushing and keeps me hopeful and faithful, uh, even in the midst of so, many, so much evidence to the contrary. Um, question is, what choice do we have? And I go back to that every time, and I, and I wouldn't decide any differently any, any, any time. I would just, yeah, please. <laughs> Um, I would just add that, you know, as an artist who works, you know, in extremely precarious conditions, I don't want to project a false image of myself. The other war that we're waging, that is waged against us, is the burnout wars of neoliberalism and the demand mm. of overproduction and, you know, trying to have a, you know, studio and pay for living, you know, in, in some of the most expensive cities in the world that are that is not just haphazard that we can't afford to you know, rent apartments in the city. That is also a systematic war that we're living in. Um, but the thing that keeps me drawn to, to, to art and, and believe in it as, a, as an educator, which is also very precarious, um, is the fact that a lot of the, the political decisions and the manipulations that the states are able to, to, to inflict on us um, is because of fear. They tap into fear. And I think turning into art is the realm that, and, and literature, I'm not talking about vision or just like literary or, or just visual arts. Um, art is the place that I turn to to learn how to be free because I've seen examples of um, people who have allowed themselves to really create from a place that has no fear and has no limits to its imagination. Uh, but that is really hard to maintain because we live under the conditions that make us really uh, one, be precarious to really have to brand ourselves and make ourselves legible in a certain way because of career um, and because of financial um, reasons. But still, I think that 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 idea, that freedom that I've seen in, in the creation of the filmmakers and artists and writers that I have um, seen have really changed the way that I look at the world. And, I, and that's that's probably what keeps me going, despite the precarity. Thank you for all of your responses. All right, so we're going to move into audience question and answer. I'm going to start with an online question. If you have a question, please come line up right here beside me. All right, we're going to start with how has the internet changed the way art interacts with war? Let's see. How has the internet changed the way that art it's a great question, number one. Uh, well, got, got me stumped. Um, it's going to change um, even more. Um, 
<clears throat> as AI getting stronger with uh, deep fakes. That's going to be interesting because um, like we all reacted on uh, images of Donald Trump getting arrested, but it kind of looked fake. But it's not going to look fake in in a year from now. Um, so I guess that is one. No. But I mean, internet is just a tool, um, and you know, it's like it, it's up to us if you use it for good or for bad. And hopefully, there are going to be more people who are going to be um, excited of using internet as a good tool. That's a great point, though. That and I think internet yeah. hygiene is a really important thing as well. So just like don't. I mean, like in activist community, people talk about it a lot. Obviously, like, can you can you be just an, an activist on the internet? I think it it is possible. I mean, if you make enough um, change, um, but you know, you know, you obviously can uh, totally just get trapped in uh, social media bullshit. But if you create, on the other hand, if you create a like, say, a media outlet or a really interesting blog, that's this this completely other um, um, story. <laughs> Not truly. Okay. We're going to move on to the next question. Hi, my name is Hans. I'm from LA. Um, you might have kind of covered this already, but aside from your art expression, what methods of lifestyle practices do you personally employ on a daily basis that help you cope with the injustices that you can't unsee? And why do you think that helps you? I hug my dog a lot. Me too. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> um, I, uh, I really embrace the golden rule. I really embrace treating people the way that I want to be treated. Um, I really believe in equality. I really believe that for me to find equality or to have equality means I gotta have this. I gotta want the same thing for you, and if I deny that in you, I deny that in myself. Um, that keeps me very focused on a certain way of being uh, and a certain way of interacting. I want to have good experiences. I want to have good relationships and transactions because those things, those are the things that are going to empower me and energize me and. You know, that's what I, I kind of just turn to. I, I, I take certain things as givens. I know that I'm going to be met with certain BS and, and, and certain, you know, approaches to, to life and living, but that doesn't mean that it has to inform the way that I approach life and living. Uh, and I just kind of stand firm in that. I actually got off social media. I mean, I still have my accounts, but I don't check social media. Um, <laughs> Is there was a point in it, I think, um, that feed cycle that is being conjured was taking time away from the work that I think I'm here to do, which is to work with the company and the artists in the room and figure out what are the resources they need to take their artistry to the next level. So it was kind of, it was just like, this is not the system that should be functional and should be making me feel all these things is actually the antithesis of what I'm actually here to do. So hmm. I check as when my marketing director says, you have to check it, like, please check this and look at this. Like, like I look at it, but it's, 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 it was not functional to my sense of self and place in the world, ironically, in creating all that access that did the opposite. Hmm. Um, well, I'm, I'm a total mess, so I guess I'm not a good person to give advice on mental health. <laughs> but I like my coffee and pills in the morning. Um, I do omega-3, really helps. Um, I work a lot, and I know it's not probably um, not the best way to run from injustices in the world, but it helps me personally. It doesn't work nicely always for my mental health, because then I just run to the point of exhaustion and I'm in a deep point, but it's, it does help, um, it does help to react immediately to injustices that you see with some sort of action that you can do. And usually I try to come up with uh, simple steps that I can make. And even if those steps are not as big as I wanted them to be, um, even 
they might seem insignificant, but I know that for my mental health, it's still important to make them, yeah. to just keep moving. Okay, we're gonna move on to the next question. Uh, hi, my name is Annie. I'm uh, with, with the Revcoms. We're the ones standing on the American and the Russian flags over there because it is this system and not humanity that needs to become extinct. And I just, you know, to, Nadia, to hear you talk about such courage and determination to go up against the fascist regime of, of Putin and, you know, a junior gangster imperialist, I do want to ask, not mainly you, although, although if you want to speak to it, but how do Amer there's so much complicity and passivity from the, you know, the bulk of American artists when they're living in the biggest imperialist monster in the world, USA number one oppressor in the world. And I just, it's very easy to applaud you over there, but I want to know how people feel the challenge to stand up against what is, again, the brutalist imperialist dominator threatening the world with, with nuclear annihilation and environmental devastation. And then I want to invite, if you're feeling hopeless, come talk with me after, because there is another way the world could be, although that will take an actual revolution. Thank you. Yeah, well, I, I think I'll pass the mic to actual Americans, because I only have experience of dealing with Russian autocracy, and I'm not an expert in the American one. But I'm curious, what do you think? <laughs> um, first off, peace to you, and thank you. Um, I feel that every day, what you're saying. And I don't profess to have those answers. Um, I just know that consciousness is at the core of it. Kind of what, what we all have to be illuminated to is just is to how this is a much broader picture and more than what we see or what is shown to us. And we have to be willing to take deeper dives and to have different conversations and want that for ourselves and each other to be able to come to certain realizations and perhaps solutions. Um, but I, yeah, I do not have, I do not profess to, to have the answers. It's a confusing place to be because you're fighting, we're in a, we're in a, a society where we're fighting every day just to maintain and where there are so, so much of our population that's fighting every day just to have food on the table, much less be able to figure out what bigger issue is going on, you know? How to keep their kids safe and all of these just existential things. So it's hard to even get past that. Some, in some ways it's a privileged place to be able to look broader than that. And so it's hard, it's just confusing because what do you do? How do you look past your everyday existence that you're just scratching and scraping trying to hang on right and your kid you know what I mean so that's a hard one for me to answer yeah thank you for that I just wanted to add that um, I appreciated that because you know when we talk about art we kind of we tend to separate it from the rest of the ecosystem that we're a part of and those are very entangled um, yeah, I mean, there's no open. This is not a secret that the U.S. is the biggest weapon manufacturer and oh. exporter of the world. Um, so there's something to be said about you know war as a as a you know there is an incentive in in creating and, and continuing wars. Um, and a lot of those individual. I mean, when we think about museums and you know the, those are not just abstract spaces where we hang paintings. There's there's like a lot of individuals with a lot of power and a lot of money that sit and have a lot of say in how those spaces are operated. So those words are very much entangled. Um, and that's what I meant by peace. What do we even mean by peace? We're, we're living in war. And that's what I mean by you know being, being, being conscious of that, that when I make, it's not that that war that I lived through and ended, it's like, it's constant war. Um, and how does that manifest in my work? And when, how do I think about that? How to, how, to, how to not to contribute to this, um, to the sustenance of this never-ending um, finance drive. Okay, well, that's the last question that we have time for, so I'm gonna pass it back to you, Viet.
Thank you. Uh, yeah. It's time for us to close, so I want to thank you all for your incredible conversation. It's been an honor to speak with each of you. And thank you to everyone in our audience for joining us tonight. You'll be able to find a summary of our talk at ZocaloPublicSquare.org by tomorrow, plus interviews with all our panelists. You can also subscribe to Zocalo's newsletter, podcast, and social media. Before we uh, depart, I just want to remind everybody there is a free reception that you're all welcome to. Uh, take place behind the wine bar immediately after this. So we'll, we'll see you there. For now, Galare, Khalil, uh, Michael, and Nadia, thank you again for your conversation tonight. Everyone, please give our guest another round of applause. Thank you. Thank you.